Just notice the truth. The days and nights are relentlessly passing. They don't care whether you like it or not. If you want them to go slower, they won't well, go slower. And then the secondary question, the following question. How well am I spending my time? The first examination, maybe that seems like, oh, I should be meditating more. Um, but another way of parsing that suggestion is, uh, am I spending my time, is my time well spent? If I, if I go to work and I'm working in an office or a kitchen or a hotel or any place where I might be working, is my time there spent well? Or is it just kind of going by in a blur, or vaguely, or uh, maybe not so skillfully? Am I, am, I, am I keeping awareness of myself and my conduct and my speech? Am I constantly refreshing my intention to conduct myself skillfully? Or am I sort of letting that slide and only coming back to it when I sit down and meditate? Because every day and every night, a whole day and a whole night goes by. And that entire time that you're conscious during that period of time, it's possible to spend that time well, no matter what you're doing. So one could be perusing the news, talking to one's partner, walking the dog, shopping, and could be doing it well, or could be doing it badly. <coughs> so this is a, a, one of the many reflections the Buddha suggests to us, and a lot of these things have a uh, layers of potential meaning that can be seen in them if you if you ponder them. What does it mean to spend time well? Uh, do we do we do we divide up our day into uh, time that I'm going to spend well and then the rest of the time? So maybe maybe that's a, a place to start. If you're not spending any time well at all, you know, you can start somewhere. So you start with what you, what you can do, right? where you can bring awareness. The Buddha suggested that uh, in many ways, in order to spend time well, in order to, for our time to be well spent, it should be spent in, in a way that he called skillful, kusala. Uh, there's kusala and there's akusala. So kusala is skillful or, or, or wholesome or uh, maybe good, and akusa, which means something like unskillful or unwholesome. So, um, it sounds a little harsh, but any time the mind is not intentionally being skillful, att attempting to, to conduct itself in a skillful way, its default mode tends to be deluded. 
uh, unaware, un not, not paying very much attention. And a deluded mind is inherently akusala, unskillful. It doesn't mean that it's evil. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be doing something terrible in order for it to be akusala. Uh, and so this is a, 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 an important point to bear in mind for practitioners. Um, there's a, a great story in the suttas the Buddha is talking about his it's uh, a period of time before his enlightenment. When he was just, he says, when I was just an ordinary bodhisattva, and not yet enlightened, not yet fully enlightened, uh, that his practice was to watch his mind and separate his thoughts into two categories, kusala and akusala. So thoughts are coming up in the mind all the time, even in someone who's pursuing enlightenment even in the Buddha before he becomes enlightened. Akusala thoughts occur. Okay, that's just part of being human. The mind generates thoughts. Just like this, the heart pumps blood. It's just what it does. You don't have to take it personally. But what you can do is you can examine the content of those thoughts or the nature of those thoughts. Uh, the impulses, the uh, moods that the mind generates and ask yourself the question, is this kusala or akusala, skillful or unskillful, wholesome or unwholesome? And the way to discern that is to consider that if the course of thought or the mood of the mind or the inclination were to be pursued and brought to fullness, sort of brought to its logical direction, would that lead to one's own welfare and benefit? And would it lead to the welfare and benefit of others, or not? Obviously, if it leads to benefit, then it's probably kusala. And Buddha said that those kinds of thoughts and moods and intentions and inclinations of the mind should be supported and cultivated and held onto. And if a thought or a mood or an inclination of the mind were in your judgment to be Akusala, unskillful, and then such things should be abandoned. And there you go, that's the whole practice right there, in a nutshell. When you're meditating, that's exactly what you're doing. The mind wandering is akusala. The mind knowing what it's doing, intentionally paying attention to something. Uh, the mind directing itself, the mind containing itself, the mind in charge of itself, is a trained mind, the mind that's kusala, the mind that's able to respond in a skillful way to whatever comes up. So if a you know, difficult memory comes up, then the mind that's right on top of things, knows exactly what's happening, can say, oh, look, there's a painful thought from the past that's coming up, a memory. I can either grab onto that memory and start massaging it and squeezing more memories out of it and squeezing moods out of it and squeezing additional thinking out of it, or I could just drop it. What would be the most skillful course of action? Well, if you're meditating, dropping it's the thing you should do. If you can, drop it. That would be kusala. If the 
thought that's coming up is coming up in the course of doing something which is uh, requires thinking. So say you're planning a trip and you need to think about where to stay in the hotel and which airline to use and you know, what time you can should get up. All those kinds of things require thinking. There's nothing wrong with thinking. But what's kusala is to be thinking and know that you're thinking. Be aware that that's what's happening and to not lose track, not lose yourself in thinking. And it's not easy. It's not, uh, it's not our default mode of the mind. The mind resists being supervised, you can say. It doesn't really like to be, necessarily. It's not natural for it. Um, when I was growing up, I grew up uh, in a rural part of uh, Arizona. And we had horses. And you know, newborn horses, they're, they're kind of like little wild animals, right? They, they, they like to run, they like to play. Uh, they, uh, they don't like being told what to do. If you want to play with them, they're totally with you. But if you, if you want to do something like put a halter on them or put a saddle on them, they, they don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So in order for a, a horse to be a, a useful animal, uh, for human purposes, one has to train it. <coughs> and the horse doesn't like being trained. You do what you can to make it as, as pleasant and as fun for the horse as possible, but really when it gets right down to it, the, the bit has to go in the horse's mouth. And the first time the bit goes in the horse's mouth, they just don't like it. They slobber and they chew and they try to get it out of their mouth. But the bit goes in their mouth and the halter is holding it into their, into their mouth. And eventually they get tired of trying to get it out of their mouth. And they just kind of relax and they just accept, okay, this thing is in my mouth. And then once the bit's in their mouth and the reins are hooked up to the bit, you can use the bit to guide the, where their head's pointed. And with that little bit of training, just being able to tolerate that, that foreign thing in their mouth, uh, now you can actually point the, the horse's head to the left or to the right, or pull the horse's head in. And once the horse is used to the saddle and used to you being on its back, now you can actually ride the horse and get it to go here and there and yonder. So the horse is, is undergoing some training in all of this. And every step of the way, a lot of horses just will resist every like every inch of it. So the first time you put the saddle on the back of the horse, it's rocking <laughs> and it's waiting for its mother and it's running from you. <laughs> it's doing all kinds of stuff. But then it gets tired of it. And it's starts to realize that the, the saddle is not really hurting it. It gets used to the idea. So it gets used to the bit, it gets used to the saddle, it gets used to the halter. And then at a certain point, uh, when the horse is trained enough that you can actually ride it and control it and trust it, then you can start taking it out and going on adventures. So then the horse starts to realize that when the bit's coming and the saddle is coming, it's not all bad. Right. There'll be this, this, like we get to go out the front gate, and then we'll go out to the park, and maybe there'll be an apple or a carrot involved here somewhere. And so then the horse starts to have a more kind of uh, positive attitude towards the train and towards the, the benefits of the train. And then the rider and the horse can actually do uh, useful things. You can go on an errand, you can like, go grocery shopping with the horse. Uh, you can. Uh, take somebody else for a ride, you can do a tour, you can go out to the backfield and look at the fences, you can do all kinds of things that you couldn't do before, because now you have this trained horse. The mind is the same way. 
it starts off kind of wild and doesn't want to be trained. It resists training. It's normal for it to resist training. It's not that the mind's bad, it's just it's just its nature. It's been its whole life wandering here, wandering there, pursuing various trivial interests. And, you know, it's it's got that deep habit of doing whatever the hell it wants, whatever the hell it wants to do. And so then you come along with this kind of meditation thing that you want to do, like putting the bit in the mouth. So the, the mind resists. That's normal. So you don't you don't have to hate the mind or chastise the mind or feel bad about the mind, criticize the mind for not liking it. It's just the way it is. The way to get past that is simply persistence. And so you stick with it. You just kind of keep putting the bed in the mouth, keep, keep sitting the mind down and saying, okay, now's the time to meditate. And it, But whenever there's a possibility of, or whenever the, the opportunity comes along where the meditation is like kind of not so bad, kind of tolerable in mind, like you put your, your attention on the breath, and it kind of stays with it for a while. Just notice, you actually have to put your attention on the fact that that's kind of nice. There's a certain peacefulness to just like not being distracted by a whole bunch of other things, not worrying about anything else, just kind of paying attention to one thing. It's kind of nice. It's not maybe like, uh, you know, uh, the, it's not like maybe having a dinner party with your friends or something nice, but it's it's got a kind of a silent, peaceful niceness to it. And here's a, the magic of the mind is. Just like when you have the bit in the horse's mouth, you can point its head to the left or the right. And so if to the left of the horse there's something that the horse likes, like some its friends or some hay or something, if you don't let it see the hay or the whatever the thing that it likes, it, it won't go there. You just point its head to the other direction and it doesn't see the thing that's over here. That's the whole point of putting blinders on horses that you could block off from their vision uh, things that would distract it or would maybe frighten it. So it just like you just kind of restrict what it's able to attend to, and then what it does attend to is more to your to your advantage. Same thing with your mind. When you when you're training the mind, your job as like sort of the trainer is to point its attention at what's going to help, what's worth what's worth pointing attention to. If you don't actually intentionally point the attention at something, then the attention will just sort of wander and kind of go wherever it wants. So you have to kind of think, okay, here I am, I'm in the saddle here, I'm, I'm trying to be in charge. And whenever you notice that attention is going someplace unhelpful, you very gently kind of bring it back to what's helpful. And the trick is that whatever you pay attention to, uh, it kind of creates like a, a kind of a uh, impression. The more carefully you pay attention to it, the more impressed the mind becomes with that thing. If the thing has a pleasant aspect to it, the more kind of positive affect that impression will have. So while you're meditating, one of the things that's very helpful to do is actually pay attention to the pleasant. There's something very subtly pleasant about 
not living in the past, not worrying about the future, just quiet, just being here right now. It's so still. There's a kind of a very subtle sweetness to it. It's the sweetness of non-perturbation, non-disturbance. And you have to kind of seek it out, start to try to notice it. And it might only last for just a second or two. And when you're first trying to get the mind to be, to take on the training, at first most of what's happening is the mind gets distracted and it pays attention for a second, gets distracted again. Mm, it's just normal. But as soon as you can notice that it's pleasant or positive in any sort of way, just pay attention to that. Just go, oh yeah, look, that's, that's kind of nice, isn't it? I like that. That's pleasant. And so now you're putting, you're aiming your attention at something which the, ho the, mind, the horse of the mind is enjoying, is liking. So you just kind of encourage that. That's kusala, that's skillful, that's wholesome. It's wholesome to encourage the mind to find pleasure in doing something which is really good uh, and bears long-term fruits. Generosity is the same way. Any one of the things that the Buddha encourages us to do so he, he, he praises generosity. And generosity is not to give money, give time, give effort, give help to other people. Uh, the Buddha says you should do it. So if you just do it sort of out of rote, then it feels like you're kind of paying a membership fee or paying a tax or something in order to be a boost. If you look at it like that and it's not very pleasant, then you're not going to get the full benefit. So what you're supposed to do if you're practicing any of the practices is to try to notice its impact, like what its, what its function is, how it, how it manifests in the world, how you feel about it. So when you're giving somebody something, you're doing something nice for somebody, you're giving somebody a lift, or you're giving them some attention, or you're giving them a neck rub, whatever it is that you're giving, just notice how it feels to be giving, to not trying to get anything, just like I'm giving this gift. And notice the other person's reaction. If it's positive, you know, enjoy it. If it's not so positive, then just write it off. But notice the, the impact on the, on the mind. And just pay attention to that, because that's the, that's the thing that makes it so that the mind is more inclined to, go to, to be open to doing that in the future. So you, your practice, you don't really want to be forcing the mind to do stuff, because that's, that's unpleasant. Sometimes you have to kind of bear down, and you have to kind of put some energy into it. You have to make some effort. But if you're, if you're kind of like being a drill sergeant with your mind, like, you pay attention to that breath, you know, curse you, you crazy mind, then of course it doesn't like it. <laughs> and it does not looking forward to the next time you do that, right? So you want to just, you want to, it's like, again, sort of think of your mind as like you're training this horse, right? Yes, there's going to be parts about it that's not so fun, right? The horse is going to resist. But, but it's not that bad. Like with the bits in the, in the horse's mouth, if you ever take like a horse's bit on, on the bridle and put it in your mouth, it's like, it's not that bad. <laughs> You're not really hurting the horse when you put it in its mouth. It just resists because of its nature. It's one of the things I did when I was a kid. It's like, you know, why is the horse freaking out when I put the bit in its mouth? Is it, you know, is it conducting electricity or something? <laughs> put it in my mouth, you know. I rinsed it out first. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just like, you know, I, I don't know, maybe yeah, I didn't have braces, but it must be like that. You just have some foreign thing in your mouth. It's, it's, you know, it doesn't hurt. 
just don't like it. So, so the meditation is the same way. Or, or practicing any of the practices. If you take up, you decide to practice metta, or you take up generosity, or you try to practice the Brahma Viharas, um, you're practicing mindfulness, you're doing walking meditation, uh, anything that you're doing that's not like, instantly gratifying. Uh, it's not uh, deeply already habituated. It's something that you're used to doing. It's something that you've already found pleasure and gratification and that you trust. There's going to be some resistance and you just have to accept that's the case. The nature of training. Right? So, so what you do is you, whenever you successfully meditate, so say you say, I'm going to meditate every day for 20 minutes or something like that. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Whatever your, whatever your hit or miss ratio is. But whenever you actually do it, put some effort into paying attention to the pleasant aspect of that. Right? There's something pleasant about doing what you said you were going to do. There's something gratifying about spending your time well. There's something reassuring about it. There's something uplifting about it. There's something positive about it. It's not just like you just check the box in your bed and just ignore it. And you actually pay attention. I mean, that's, that's a good thing. This is worth doing. I'm glad I spent my time doing that. I want to do this more in the future. You kind of have to kind of tell yourselves those things. So that's like giving the horse a little carrot. You know? So then it's not all bad. Right? So now, you know, now the mind has something that it can, uh, it can feel good about. Right? Our minds are, in a fundamental way, they're kind of pleasure-seeking machines. They're, they're, they're designed to seek comfort, to seek pleasure, to seek uh, safety, uh, to flee danger, to flee fear, to flee pain, to, to avoid discomfort. Uh, and so that's natural. It's just the way it is. In, any animal is like that. It's, it's probably grounded in evolution and survival. So we're always going to be going against the grain when we're training the mind. Uh, so in order to make that training go a lot faster and a lot more pleasant, we actually have to consciously pay attention to what's wholesome and what's uplifting and what's positive and what's enjoyable and what's pleasant about every aspect of the training. If you're able to bring mindfulness to driving your car or uh, doing your work or washing the dishes, if you can wash the dishes with mindfulness, there's something kind of pleasant about that. If you can do something, oh, have a sleep, uh, then there's not a whole lot, there's not, it's not very memorable. You can't like look back on that and feel good about it. But if you're doing something like really alert and like really kind of attending to the texture and the feeling and the motion and the contact of that, washing the dishes, uh, then you can actually remember having washed the dishes and you can look back on that memory with some sense of like, well, that was a wholesome way to do it. Better than just letting the mind think about politics or something. So, so every time that you succeed in doing anything that's in, in line with the training, try to notice what's good about it, what's, what's pleasant about it, what's nice about it, what's uplifting about it, what you can feel good about it. And review those things, because that becomes like the fuel for your future success in training. So you're, you're actually entering into this kind of virtuous cycle. Okay? At first, you start off with zero success. 
right? First time you decide to sit down with meditation, so far your, your, your scorecard is zero. But the first time you actually put your, your bum in the seat and you sit down and say, I'm going to try this, you know, and you try. Okay, now you've got, you've got something you can look back on and say, okay, I, that was one. You know, I've got, I've got a success, one in the box. Every time that the mind's able to stay with the breath for one whole breath, that is successful. Right? Two breaths in a row, that's twice as successful. Yeah? So it kind of just goes uphill from there. It, goes, you know, it, it can become more and more successful if you're counting it to success. If you're paying attention only to the times that the mind didn't do what you set out to do, and you're criticizing yourself, then of course, that's not, that's not very encouraging. Right? So, you, so think of your mind like this kind of animal that you're training, and you want to encourage it, you want to support it, you want to reinforce the positive. And anything that's not going so great, well, you just kind of let that pass on by. And don't let it discourage you. Just keep coming back, keep trying again, keep training and training. And eventually, you start kind of getting this traction where, the, where you feel like, okay, yeah, this is, this is, <coughs> you have an attitude of training. You bring an attitude of training to your life. So you, you can be, Walking into a grocery store, and part of your mind is like, okay, how can I, you know, how can I use this skillfully? Uh, or uh, what's, you know, what potential dangers are here? What could I get distracted by? And how you know, should I alert myself to that? What are the places where I usually get sucked in? Should I? You know? So, you, so you're kind of like you're kind of watching, <coughs> watching over yourself. It's like you're, it's like the rider on the back of the horse, paying attention to what's happening. Rather than all of the riders sort of asleep on the horse in the back of the horse, and the horse just wanders around and does whatever it wants. So when the mind's well trained and it's used to being trained and it's used to training all the time, it becomes like the new norm. It becomes the new standard, that, that the, the kind of the new habit, as it were. And to be habituated to training is actually a good thing. Uh, then when the occasional non-mindfulness period comes about. It feels off, and you don't really like it that much. Right? So it's not—it's not fun to be unmindful. That—that uh, that eventually comes about because you've spent a lot of effort and time training yourself to be mindful in as many circumstances as you can. And when you do that, you're actually following the whole eightfold noble path. You know, your 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 intention is the right intention. It's an intention to be to, to do what's wholesome and to abandon what's unwholesome. Your view is right. You, your view is one that training leads to benefit. That's an aspect of right view. That basically cause and effect are real. You actually can make things better. That's right view, an aspect of right view. Your speech will be very careful, mindful speech. You'll be conducting yourself with right speech. So right view, right attention, right speech right action, right livelihood. So this, this training mindset, they'll be bringing like kind of this awareness that things could go off track. How, and how can I spend my time well? How well am I spending my time here at work, here in traffic, in front of the computer, uh, you know, everywhere? How well am I spending my time right now? Uh, what, what are the pitfalls? What are the dangers? What are the things that are likely to, to go wrong? How am I, what are my habitual downsides in a situation like this? And so you're kind of alert to those things and you're paying attention to them. 
and you become more and more uh, thoroughgoing. And eventually, then your whole life starts to look like that. Right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort. So the last three are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And we, we practice those formally when we're meditating. We sit down, and that's we kind of bring up this effort to put the mind on an object and keep it there until it gets nice and calm, and then expand what the mind's paying attention to to include more and more mental and physical objects so that we can get insight, deep insight into the nature of mind and body. So that's the that's where concentration, mindfulness and concentration really come into their own, where they really start to transform the mind, start to transform our view of what it means to be a human being, of what life is all about and what's worth doing and what's what, what's not worth doing. In a deep, intuitive way. And uh, and in that, we will be abandoning the causes of suffering. We'll be fulfilling the Buddha's instructions around the Four Noble Truths. To understand suffering, to know the cause of suffering, and to abandon that cause, and to practice the path that leads to the abandoning of suffering, the cessation of suffering, the cessation of unsatisfactoriness. So training this horse, taking on this training, and constantly bringing ourselves back to this question of how well am I spending my time is, the, is a, another like, way of summarizing the whole teaching for yourself. You just ask yourself that every morning, the days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? Ask yourself that at breakfast. Ask yourself that at work, in the car, on the way home tonight. Keep asking that question, and if the answer is, well, you know, I could, you know, I see that I'm just kind of drifting there. Just bring yourself back, just like with meditation. You don't have to beat yourself up. You just have to kind of lean in the direction of training, and just keep keep coming back over and over again, and and recognize that there's really nothing that uh, there's really nothing that you could be doing that would be more ultimately <laughs> worthwhile than training yourself. And uh, there's no downside to it. It's all, it's just pure upside. All you have to give up is all the worthless distractions that have been wasting your life up to now. And what you get in return is the deathless, the Buddhist fulfillment. evenings that we do, uh, we also try to leave some time for questions and answers. That's frequently one of the things that we do. So I'm going to wrap it up right there and leave some time for questions. Go ahead. So so Mira will call for the slide. Handamayam damakataya sadukaram dadamase sadhu 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 anamodam
people that are aware that how we impact the global warming is very serious. So we're all, many of us are thinking about that and, and wondering, uh, depending on our age, what the future is going to be for our children and our grandchildren, right? And, and for myself, I, I try to remain, I have to say that I'm um, somewhat fatalistic about what might happen, and at the same time, trying to be hopeful, and at least in my day-to-day -day, uh, living, to be mindful of, of what I'm doing, right? What resources I'm using, what my footprint is. Um, so, you know, I don't know if that's right thought, or is it, you know, is it, um, you know, I don't be not being in the present by thinking about, you know, the doomsday clock getting closer and closer to um, where it might be irrevocable. Mm -hmm. So, in the, fa in the face of these very serious problems, um, you know, for me, how to, how to stay in the present time, when the present time is um, one that, that it, it is very um, problematic. So that, that's my question. Okay, so, yeah. so let me just see if I can rephrase your question so yeah, I understand. Sure, right. Okay, so um, given that the world is faced with uh, potential catastrophe mm -hmm. in the form of global warming or the effects of that, uh, is it worthwhile? You know, is it well spent time to uh, uh, worry about that? I guess. Maybe? Or, yeah, or do you I mean, think about it? Or, yeah, what's, my, what's the right intention? Yeah, okay, yeah. so I, I have a few thoughts. Um, yeah, go for it. <laughs> from, a, from, a, uh, from my perspective as a practitioner, there's a, a very deep teaching which um, is at the heart of what the Buddha's trying to get us to see. And this is the teaching of anicca. Uh, one of the translations of anicca is impermanence. But another translation is <coughs> uncertain. There's a certain, I guess you could say, there's, there's not a certainty to what will happen. And our, a tendency of our minds is to, is to reify things which are inherently uncertain. So to, to, make a, to make a solid, static reality out of something which is inherently uncertain. And so the classic example is something like this, a physical object, like this bell. Right? We look at this, and our minds are absolutely convinced that this thing is a bell. You know? There's kind of an imposition of, of an identity onto this phenomenon. And that's normal, it's like the normal functioning of our minds. Is, but, but if you're, like, imagine like a just a recently born infant, right? And you hold this up in front of her and you kind of show it to her and ring it for her. She doesn't know what it is, right? For her, the uncertainty is not even a consideration. It's just data coming in and an experience happening. 
who's closer to the truth of this? Me with my label that it's a bell and thinking that I know everything about it? Or her who's just experiencing it just the way it actually is, right now? Right? So we can, we can kind of appreciate that the mind freed of all of its conceptual overlays onto actual experience is closer to the truth of what is happening. And what, what's, what's, what life actually is, what the mind actually is, what the experience actually is. And the mind that's operating only from the perspective of concepts, of recognition, and of, of, of kind of labeling, and of making the world into static categories. Like the categories of past and future, for example, or me and you, or up and down. Those things that have like a certain conventional reality that we all participate in, and there's nothing wrong with them. But they, we have to. What we're trying to do with our practice is see the difference between those categories of experience, and the way that we, we, the way that we kind of, our minds habitually assign value and meaning to things, and the actual experience of them. Right? And it's because the actual experience is something happening, and so, so it's real, whereas a worry about the future or a, a, a regret about the past is the mind going off into something that doesn't actually exist. Right? It's going off into, into, into well, think about the past, right? So the little girl or the little boy that you were uh, so many years ago, you can remember scenes from that aspect of your life. Are, you know, is that person that you were real? Or is that just something going on, some electrical things happening inside your head, which create this, this phenomenon of memory? Right? So it, it, with careful consideration, if you really examine this question of what is the past? What do we mean by when we say the past? You can see very deeply that there is no such thing. But we all conduct our lives as though it's completely real, absolutely you know, incontrovertible. But there's no such thing. It's purely mental. Right? And the collective past of a, like a nation's history or something like that is simply a collective mental act of agreeing that this is our past. Right? That it's sort of a seeding to it. Infants aren't born with a past. Right? They're born into a, into a culture, and the culture gives them a historical past of their culture. And so one basically takes possession of it, and it now becomes, you know, the, my people or something like that. So our minds are doing this; they're creating this whole world of past and future that we spend the majority of our life in, and we're just we're kind of like missing what's actually here right now—the actual truth. This is the only true thing that there is. Right? So as long as we use our best understanding. And what's the wholesome thing to do? What's the best course of conduct in a given situation? So, okay, I'm walking in the park and I've got a cup of, I've, I've stopped at Tim's and I've got a nice coffee cup and I'm drinking my coffee and I'm finished. And I want to get rid of this stupid paper cup. How about I just pitch it into the bushes, right? Or maybe I look for the, the recycling bin, right? Well, that's a place where, you know, right thought, right action, right speech, right livelihood, consideration for everybody else, you know, how other people might view it, how it might hurt them, or how they see it, you know, someone's cup in the bush. So, so you, bearing that all in mind, if you're practicing well, you'll probably do something which is much more civil and, and 
you know, recycle it properly. Okay, that's, but that's all you can do in the present, right? You can't reach into the future and stop global warming. You can't reach out and even into the present and stop other people from being who they are, driving their cars and whatnot, right? You can't reach over to China and stop them from trying to dominate the world in terms of manufacturing. You know, you can't. You, you, you can worry about it. You can spend all your time, you know, writing sternly worded letters to newspapers in it. You know, <coughs> its effect in the world is, is going to be fundamentally limited, right? So you have to kind of look at your life and ask yourself, what's the best course of conduct? And what the Buddha says, and, or what I'm going to say the Buddha says, okay, so my interpretation, is the best possible thing for you to do is to train your mind and your heart to let go of the causes of suffering. Free yourself from that which causes suffering. Let go of clinging and experience enlightenment. Because then, everything that you do will be coming from an enlightened perspective and will be infused with an understanding of the truth of the human condition, of the human, of what, what it means to be a person, what humanity is, and will never do anything to make things worse out of selfishness or self-consideration. And that's the best possible human life you can live. That's about the best anybody can possibly do. So on an individual basis, the best thing you can do with your time is to you know, wisely conduct yourself. Right? Spend your time well. Train your mind. If you do that, then that's the best way to sort of secure the future. Right? Because the future you will be one that's increasingly skillful, increasingly uh, has an increasing meta-awareness of what it is that motivates humans to do what they do. And it's increasingly compassionate towards their flaws and foibles and increasingly uh, equanimous towards the inevitability of samsara to be the way it is. Right? You, like it's not subject to change because it's not under control. We can no more change the nature of samsara than we can change the nature of the thermonuclear explosion at the heart of the sun. It's not under our control because it's not self. We can't even control our own bodies. You can't control anything that your body decides to do. It's going to get sick. It does it whether you like it or not. So, Recognizing what is under your control, or what you can influence, and what you can't actually influence, what doesn't belong to you, that's wisdom. You know, coming to that understanding in a very deep way. So, training the mind, training the heart, learning how to, how to uh, see deeply into these truths that the Buddha is pointing to, uh, that's the best solution to global warming, right? Someone who's doing that and doing it well, you know, they, they're going to very naturally minimize their carbon footprint because they're not, they're not driven by greed, hatred, and delusion. Right? You could say that's what's causing all the problems in the world, is greed, hatred, and delusion. Can you reach out and stop anybody else's greed, hatred, or delusion? You can't. All you can do is put them in jail. Uh, but you can stop your own greed, hatred, and in doing that, you're setting a wonderful, fabulous example. You're, you're relieving the world of some greed, hatred, and delusion in the form of one person. And you're inspiring everybody around you who sees that. Right? The reason that you're here is because someone inspires you. Right? Some, somewhere along the line, you picked up the message that, oh, there's something here that's worth pursuing. 
in Buddhist teaching. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested, I want to. So, that. It's like the Buddha's teaching is a social phenomenon, right? It's not something that's being imposed with, from without. It's basically inspiring and attractive, and people who, who want freedom, who want, who want uh, the best for themselves and for the rest of the world, they, they come and they, they learn and they practice. So, okay, maybe it doesn't sound very, like a very uh, promising long-term solution to global warming. Right? It's not going to remove any carbon from the atmosphere to practice mindfulness. But the, the truth is, nothing that you can do really <laughs> in, in one human life is going to, is going to shift the, 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 the future weather in any meaningful way. But what you can do is free yourself from the causes of suffering, and that will ripple out into the world in a positive way that can't even be predicted. Uh, but, you know, I've known plenty of people who are passionate, something, else, something or otherists, environmentalists or peace activists or this or that, who were doing it sort of very un uh, unskillfully. You know, lots of righteous anger involved in those things. And I've got to tell you, anger just doesn't inspire other people. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, draw people in. It drives, drives people away. So, uh, you know, there's no way to force the rest of the world to be the way you want it to be. But there is a way to, you could almost say, seduce the rest of the world, or at least part of the world, to the beauty and the kindness and the generosity and the love that, that Buddha's teaching evokes in the human heart. And, okay, that's something you can actually do. And you can do it every moment of the day. So that's my best answer. Okay. Thank you. Other questions? Now we've solved global warming. What else can you do? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll ask this crazy question. I'm really enjoying uh, Buddhism and, and also these, especially these Friday nights and, and the Dharma talks. They're wonderful. Um, grew, I grew up... Uh, 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 Christian, or, or at least knowing about, or, about you know, about Jesus. <coughs> heard about him and said, well, Jesus was this great man, and he did this, and he, he did that, and tried to help people, and so forth. You know, whether they were lepers or whoever they were, so that's fine. And then, so when I come here, I actually have some little statues, like from Vietnam, like all hand carved, really beautiful. Of the Buddha's at home, you know, with my elephant collection. He's got these little pot bellies, but. I come here and they say, well, well the Buddha says this, and, and the Buddha does that, and it's like, you know, I said it sounds silly, but well, who is the Buddha? Mm -hmm. that's, this, that's a great question. Yeah. Who, okay. who is this Buddha guy? I don't know. Well, so what's interesting is, uh, that's funny, I was just thinking about that. Here in this, this little chanting that we did, uh, at, the beginning of the at the beginning of the session, we, uh, we chant this homage to the Buddha. So I'll, I'll just maybe do a little riff about that. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs>
to the blessed one, the Lord who fully attained perfect enlightenment. Okay? And then to the teaching and to the disciples. Uh, and then we play this preliminary homage. Homage to the, the blessed, the noble and perfectly enlightened one. We chant that three times. And then there's some, there's some um, other characteristics of the Buddha. We render with offerings our rightful homage Welfare's the blessed one having attained liberation, still had compassion for later generations. Uh, so there's this kind of refrain about the Buddha that has to do with his characteristics. And there's, there's a fair bit more of that sort of thing in the suttas. There's a place where the Buddha um, gets asked about his identity, more than one place in the suttas, the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, a collection of the teachings, where the Buddha gets asked about his identity. Who are you? Um, and the Buddha, you know, one of the first, his very first questioners said, you know, are you a god? And the Buddha says, no, I'm not a god. Are you human? Not exactly. Well, what are you? And he said, I'm awake. I am awake. The awakened one. The awakened one. So that's where he gets, that's where he gets the title, the awakened one. But he's, he's talking about not an identity, but a state, a state of being. And you can see that our training as Buddhists is to bring our own minds to a state of awakeness, continuous awareness of what's happening, continuous mindfulness of our conduct, body, speech, and mind. And uh, from a fully awake perspective. Right? So there's, there's, there's gradations to this. Partial awakeness and full awakeness. The Buddha also once, more than once, said that he who sees the Dhamma sees me, and he who sees me sees the Dhamma. Or one who sees the Dhamma sees me, and one who sees me sees the Dhamma. So he's equating Buddhahood with seeing the Dhamma or seeing the Buddha. <coughs> And the Dhamma are kind of two facets of the same thing. Facets of what? Awakeness, awakening. Right? What is it awake to? It's, it's, it's awakening from this kind of, you could say, the sleep of ignorance. Ignorance about how the mind works, about the causes of suffering, about what's worth doing in life, about cause and effect, about um, becoming, about rebirth. All these things are aspects of our are not yet knowing, are unknowing. Right? What's keeping us from knowing is that we think we already know. Right? We think that we know, like I know, right, we have this perception, I know I'm here, I'm a person, I'm this person with this history, and I have a certain bodily appearance, I, you know, I have all these characteristics. I'm certainly sure that's true. No need for further examination. And the Buddha says, well, tell me about yourself, person. Are you are you totally satisfied? And you're, well, no, not really. I'm not that happy. I've got this, you know, I've got this bad ankle, or I've got, you know, but my boss is mean to me at work, or whatever it is. Like, so you're, there's this kind of unsatisfactoriness to your to your existence, to your life. So what, the Buddha says, okay, well, here's how you get out of that. If you're if you're interested in happiness, I've got a program for you called the Eightfold Noble Path that leads to the end of unhappiness or other suffering. 
Well, in order to actually follow that program, what it does is it progressively causes you to wake up, to become acquainted with this inner ignorance and to abandon it, to actually start to face up to the truth of what's really going on. And what's really going on is not what you thought all along. Like, I'm this person inside my head and that this world out there that I have to exploit in various ways, manipulate in various ways in order to stay safe, and in order to get what I want, in order to be happy. So that happiness is this kind of, the world is an instrumentality for, that, for my happiness. I've got to somehow make myself happy using the means provided by the world. Right? So I pursue happiness out there in the world. And the Buddha's saying, that's not how it works, actually. Your mind is the thing that's unhappy, and the mind is the thing which causes unhappiness through its unskillful, uh, its, un, its unwitting, uh, uh, attending to objects, or the way it interacts with the world, its, its presumptions about the nature of the world. And by conducting your, by following the Eightfold Noble Path, you can peel back the layers of this presumption and get down to the actual truth of what's really happening. And based on that truth, you can basically rebuild a mind that's no longer deluded and is able to, to abide in the world the way it actually is without needing anything to change. Totally happy, completely get at ease and completely content. And so content and so at ease and so, so peaceful that nothing can shake it. No thing can happen to that mind and cause it to lose its happiness. Not even death. Right? And so that's why the, the one who knows Nibbana is said to be one who knows the deathless. Right? They're, not, they're no longer subject to death the way ordinary humans are subject to death. So, so you can sort of see that what the Buddha is pointing to is uh, radically unconventional. It's not just a program of, of like diet and exercise. It's, it's, uh, it's a program of mind training, which is so thoroughgoing, it completely, radically uh, transforms the heart and the mind and the identity of the person, but totally in a positive way, an abandoning of all the things that are causing problems, and an embracing of all the things that are wholesome and good. And so, okay, who's the Buddha? You could say he's the one that taught this. Or you could say the Buddha arises when the mind abandons ignorance. And then you become the Buddha. But one of the things about this person who becomes a Buddha is they are no longer a person in the conventional sense. Right? So there's these paradoxes that, that come out in language when you try to talk, when a person tries to talk about it. There's a great sutta in which the Buddha has a, a new, a relatively new disciple who is getting into some arguments with some other. <laughs> Uh, ascetics about the nature of the Buddha. And the question was, well, what happens to the Buddha after he dies? Does he, does he still exist, or does he go to some other place, or does he no longer exist? Does he sort of vanish? Or, right? And so the, this new student couldn't really answer the question, so he goes to the Buddha and says, you know, I said, well, I know that you say that, that the answer that I still exist, that the Buddha still exists, is wrong. And that the answer that, I, that the Buddha does not exist is also wrong. And so I said, well, it's got to be something else. And the Buddha said, well, you know, properly speaking, even right now, sitting in front of me, it wouldn't be proper to say that the Buddha exists. Right? So he's pointing, he's kind of pointing to a radical truth that's not self-evident on the surface. 
which is existence itself is something that the mind is doing. It doesn't have an external reality outside the mind. The mind imposes existence on phenomena. Right? So th this is what I was alluding to earlier with the bell. Right? Mm -hmm. We think the bell exists. Right? Our minds create this category of things which exist and then like the possibility of things not exist. But we take the evidence of our senses as confirmation of this presumption of existence. Because it seems so true, so real, so incontrovertible. But meditation can eventually lead the mind to see that that is something that's being fabricated out of sensory contact, which isn't true like on the other side. Like the bell doesn't exist on its own side. It only exists because our minds impose bellness on this phenomenon. Okay, well that sounds very interesting intellectually, but when you see it for yourself very deeply, it calls into question absolutely everything, including your own existence. So if you don't actually exist, then what the heck is happening here? <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those things that one has to see for oneself in order to really understand it. It, it sounds a little kind of crazy and kind of mysterious, but it's actually very, very, <clears throat> uh, it's like palpably close. It's, it's, it's right, it's happening all the time. The mind is constantly fabricating uh, a story about what's happening. And the ability of us to see the mind doing that and then consider, well, what's there if the, if the story stops? It's, it's, just, it's really close. The mind is... It's like basically stopping doing something that the mind habitually does. But because it's happening below the threshold of conscious awareness, sort of like when you drive your car and the car just seems to get, get you where you want to go, but you don't remember pressing on the accelerator or hitting the brakes or doing all the stuff that you have to do, it just sort of happens by itself. The mind is sort of by itself doing this thing where it assigns reality to things. So because you're not consciously aware of it, you can't really do anything about it. And that's why there's this kind of seemingly inevitable suffering of the human life. And that's our motivation to actually go and look at this. Because if there was no suffering, why would you care? Right? You just gotta live your happy life. But if there is suffering, then you're like, well, what can I do about it? And Buddha says, well, there's this one thing that you can do. You can figure out the mechanism whereby the mind makes itself suffer and find the off switch. It's not that hard. <laughs> right? and it's, but it takes training, right? The train, only the trained mind can do it. Untrained minds can't do it. So you train the mind and eventually you start to see and then you get the hang of it and one day, well actually over a period of time, you start to see the mechanism of causing oneself to suffer and you see that it involves this tendency to, to get sticky about, to get opinionated about something. And you say, well what if I just let that go? And, you, and so you try it out, and like you let that go, and then, okay, now that doesn't doesn't bother you so much anymore. And if you're able to let go of something that you strongly hold on to in terms of a view or opinion about something, then if things go like other than what you would normally prefer, you don't actually care that much. You're like, okay, that's how things are. It's okay. Um, so when your body gets sick, then you're like, yeah, that's what bodies do. So, so this like, like the, the, the weight that you assign to things becomes much, much lighter. And so your whole life becomes lighter. And it's only because, again, the mind is imposing 
agendas and views and opinions and ideals and beliefs and all kinds of stuff on just this kind of raw phenomenon of our existence, of our, of our lives. And it doesn't have to be that way. And in order to, to, to come to this truth, you don't have to become a monk, you don't have to like give up your hopes, your, um, all your, your profession or your family or anything like that. You just have to be willing to put the time in to train your mind. Uh, training your mind like this, you know, one person's kind of compared it to uh, getting a degree in, say, chemistry in university. Okay, it's not easy. You know, just like, it's not like falling off a log, but it's not impossible. If you put your mind to it, you can do it. So if you think of it, okay, it's approximately that hard. That's about how hard it is, right? It's going to put time into it every day. You have to study, you have to work, you have to kind of show up for the exams, you have to kind of... But if you just kind of chip away at it and keep going and keep working at it, and if you fail a class, you can do it again, eventually you can get to the point where you get that chemistry degree. Right? It's not impossible. So if you frame it like that, then okay, it's just something that you have the option of doing. You could choose to put the effort in, to train the mind, to abandon the causes of suffering, and then enjoy the benefits of the life that comes after that. When you've abandoned the causes of suffering, then guess what? You don't have to suffer. At least not the way that you ordinarily do when you haven't trained the mind. The untrained mind suffers horribly, a lot, habitually, obsessively almost. The trained mind just keeps going, no, no, no I'm going to pass on that one. That's not, I don't really care for that suffering over there. I'm going to give that one up too. No suffering for me today, thanks. I've had my fill. <laughs> <laughs> so the trained mind's able to do that. It's able to say, no, thank you, and be equanimous to lots of things that the untrained mind simply can't. Right? So that's why you do it. So then the question of who is this Buddha guy uh, answers itself. Right? The Buddha is the trained mind. That's another way of answering that. How are we doing on time? Oh, it's fine there. So we should probably wrap it up there. We'll do a closing homage, which is there in the channel.